Would you please stand if you're able? The scripture this morning has been changed and is now Micah 4, 5, 1 through 5. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills. People shall stream to it. The many nations shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the Lord of, of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction to the world of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war in any more, but they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks. You may be seated. Dot, thank you for reading our lesson. Uh, whenever I hear her read, I, I want to crumpet for some reason, uh, some tea. We're always grateful for you and for sharing the word. It is such a, an incredible joy to be with the chapels and the hoopahs. And as we've heard this beautiful music, the prayers of the children, we are reminded uh, of the capacity of a child to pull people together from different walks, different places. And to be able to do that with uh, my daughter and son-in-law and, and Andrew is just a great joy and to be with all of you today. Um, we're interrupting our series today, which has been on Philippians the last four weeks, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, which we have called Joyful. I was going to preach on Philippians 3 today, and, and I have three sermons prepared, and you'll be happy to know that I will only preach one of those sermons. But I just couldn't find peace in my study. I couldn't find peace on the preparations that I had done on Philippians 3. And I found myself all week sort of drawn to the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, specifically to the prophet Micah, to chapter 4, this incredible image, this vision of an age to come, which, by the way, is not only found in Micah 4, but it's found word for word in Isaiah 2 and in Joel 3. And so this is a repetitive vision that God has given to his prophets. We'll get back to Philippi next week. I don't know where you were. I will always remember where I was on Tuesday afternoon. I was about to leave the church to go home when my phone, my cell phone lit up with news of yet another mass shooting. The 27th school shooting this year, the third in two weeks. In 2021, we had 61 active shooter incidents. And I read this week, as, the, as you did, in the New England Journal of Medicine, that now guns have replaced car accidents as the leading cause of death 
in children. It was up 14% in 2020 and 30% in 2021. On Tuesday morning at 11.32 a.m., an 18-year-old boy carrying an assault rifle that he had purchased about a week before, two of them actually, on his birthday, found an opening in the schoolhouse in Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, and started shooting. 19 children, two teachers, 21 in all, 22 if you count the shooter, and we do. When we looked at their faces and saw their names, I am haunted still by the number 10, which was the average age of each child, 10. In case you don't know, Tuesday, May the 24th, that same day was also Aldersgate Day. That's the day in 1738, May 24th, that John Wesley, our spiritual founder, the founder of the Methodist Church, that's the day that his heart was strangely warmed, he recorded in his journal. On that evening, he had gone to a Bible study in London, England at a street called Aldersgate. And while someone was reading the preface to the book of Romans, he said, all of a sudden, faith became personal. I felt Jesus in my heart. And all of a sudden, faith went from his head to his heart. It was no longer cerebral. It was experiential. And then the faith got in his feet. You may not know that May 24th is also my birthday. And if I didn't know any better, I would think that I was predestined to be a United Methodist minister. But we don't do predestination. On Tuesday, I turned 39. Again, it's my 23rd anniversary of 39. But in lieu of the shooting this week, I have to tell you that May 24th has a different meaning. To me, it's the day that our hearts were strangely torn. And it will be forever different to me. I confess my own silence, my own inaction, and that of our political and spiritual leaders. And as far as I'm concerned, May 24th, 2022 has to be the end of that. I mean, think about it. When you're right in the middle of a mental health crisis, you don't need an 18-year-old boy having access to an AR-15. My Lord, in this culture, you have to be 21 to drink alcohol, but we make accessible that kind of weaponry to an 18-year-old. And it reminds me of my definition of insanity. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. We need to change. Now, if you're like me, if you're one of those people who always thought that religion and politics should never mix, and I, and I did for a long time, don't read the book of Exodus. Because ever since Moses climbed the palace steps and went and stood in front of Pharaoh's face and demanded that he release those Hebrew slaves, religion and politics have been together. They've been tangled up. If, if you're one who believes we've got to separate that, then stay away for, for heaven's sake from Revelation. Because it's a thumb in the eye of Domitian, the Roman emperor who was persecuting and harassing Christians between 81 and 96 AD. And by all means, do not read the prophets. 
Stay away from the prophets because they will tell you silly, naive things like God can turn your arsenal into farm equipment. Ever since the early Christians refused to bow the knee to Caesar, religion and politics have been intertwined. One of my favorite community developers, Shane Claiborne, who is kind of the Brian Hicks uh, of Philadelphia, inner city Philadelphia, once said, and I quote, talking about the church, our problem is that we no longer have martyrs, now we only have celebrities. And that's a problem. You can't really untangle them, can you? I mean, I tried to do it this week. I tried to do it on Thursday in preparation for this sermon. I went to Brother Micah in the Bible. I went to him and I I said, man, you need to stick to preaching. And he took me by the arm and looked in my face and said, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God? I said, yes, sir. It's a mixed bag. Justice is what love looks like in public. But but for us, I mean, maybe I should say for me, Uvalde isn't primarily a political issue. It has political ramifications. It's a theological issue. According to Genesis 1, on the sixth day of creation, God scooped up a handful of dust and breathed his spirit into it and said, this is my best. This is my masterpiece. I've, I've outdone myself today. And he made Crosby. And he made you. He made me. Human life, humanity, is the crown of God's creation. It's the crown. You are made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. It's amazing. Now, maybe it's just me, but doesn't it seem lately that life is kind of disposable? Pope John Paul, you remember, Pope John Paul II, 30 years ago, described our age, even back then, as the culture of death. He said humanity has become so cheap and so inconvenient and so replaceable, and he said we're called to counter the culture of death with the culture of love. And by the way, that's exactly what John Paul did. He went to the prison of the man that shot him in the abdomen four times and tried to assassinate him so that he could forgive him and pray for him. And so he didn't just say it. He did it. Ryan, that's why I appreciate so much that song. Whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the way I see it, the way I read the scripture is Jesus didn't just come to get us into heaven. He came to get heaven into us. And I get a little weary sometimes of hearing voices that say, my life, my body, my guns, my rights, because I'm fearful that we're becoming a little enslaved to our own individual rights at the expense of the common good. Now, I may be wrong about this, but I think there's an epidemic on the rise that's much worse than COVID-19. I call it hyper-individualism. It's all about me. 
And it's nothing new. It's as old as the garden. The honeymooners in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, declared that they had a right to take God's place. I've got a right to be God for myself, not to just till the garden, but to own it. And don't get me wrong, I am all about rights, equal rights, human rights. And let me say, I am so grateful today for servicemen and women who have sacrificed their lives so that we can be here today, so that we can worship freely, speak freely, pursue happiness and all the rest. But the truth of the matter is that these rights are not entitlements, they're gifts. Rights come with responsibility. And life itself is not so much a right, it's a gift. And that's our theology. It's a gift. Every breath, every heartbeat. And the way that I use, the way that we use our gifts becomes our gift to the creator, to the giver of life. And if that's true, then when we misuse our gifts in ways that harm, hinder, or jeopardize life, we're actually dissing God. And we have a name for that. It's called sin. We don't hear it very often. It means to miss the mark. And we're all sinners. All we like sheep have gone astray, of course. And there is a remedy, Romans 5, 8. But God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that too is a gift. It's called grace. But once you receive it, it will rearrange everything in your life. Some of you know the name. I've talked about him before. Greg Jones, who is a Methodist minister. He's also the new president at Belmont University. And he and the provost from Baylor, a Baptist and a Methodist, co-wrote a book called Navigating the Future. This is a must-read. In one section of the book, they quote a sports writer named Charles Pierce, who, who, had, who writes for a great theological publication called Sports Illustrated. Maybe you've heard of it. Says Pierce, listen to this. We are in some sort of unstable period right now. Nothing seems solid. Nothing seems permanent. The tectonic plates of our institutions seem to be grinding loose. And all the questions begin. How can you still go to church? How can you still participate in politics? How, how can you attend that school? How can you listen to that pastor? How can you trust your money in that bank? How, how can you befriend that person? Says Pierce, we trust less and we're unsure of where to turn. This era, he says, is profoundly disorienting. And listen, too often our bewilderment compels us to one of two responses. Number one, either to an ill-advised traditionalism where we double down, do what we've always done out of habit, nostalgia, fear, resistance, or, on the other hand, to a fuzzy progressivism that only disrupts, dismantles, and disorders. Because there is the belief that unfettered faith in human progress is the game our culture plays. And neither of these impulses is sufficient for our need. I will look unto the hills 
from which cometh my help. My help comes in the name of the Lord. Our trust is not in human progress. It's in the divine providence of Almighty God. Our nation is deeply divided. And Jesus himself said troubling words, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, says it like this. You'll get this. A family that's in a constant squabble disintegrates. Now, my daughter, Haley, and my daughter-in-law, Adair, are here. They're both therapists. They're both counselors. They've been working on me. Their rates are very reasonable. They take my insurance. In fact, I've given three or four of your names to them. My daughter works specifically with teenagers, mostly teenage girls. Sherry and I call this payback at this point. But she says frequently these words to me. Listen to this. Da, she calls me Da, I wish I could get the parents in the room because the problem is not always with the identified patient. The child is often simply acting out the tension in the household. It's a systems problem, she says. And if we could ever learn to deal with the entire family, if all members of the family could see their part in the whole, I think we might have a better chance at healing the children. We paid a lot of money for that wisdom. She's a smart cookie. She's got her mother's brains. But I tell you this, what's true of the family, what she said, is true of the church. It's true of the nation. We have a systems problem and a personal problem. We have forgotten our foundation and we need all hands on deck. We need some collaboration. And I think that the church with all of our flaws and all of our troubles, I'm the senior issue in the church, but with all of our flaws, I believe the church is still the agent of healing and reconciliation for the human family because the scripture never says, for God so loved the church. It says, for God so loved the world. The world is our parish. I'm almost through. John Meacham, who is the canon historian of the Washington National Cathedral, who, by the way, is a native Tennessean, born in Chattanooga, went to Sewanee to college, brilliant writer, has written a book called The Soul of America. And he says these words. Listen to this. In our finest hours, the soul of the country manifests itself in an inclination to open our arms rather than clench our fists, to look out for somebody else rather than to turn inward, to accept other than reject. And when we do that, America may grow even stronger, confident that the choice of light over darkness is the means by which we pursue progress. Light over darkness. That's why Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but in the light of life. That's why he said in his Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot hide its light under a bushel basket, but it puts it on a lampstand where it gives light to all in the house. So let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to God in heaven. But I've discovered the hard way that I can't be a light unless I'm walking in the light. Becoming a grandfather, with this I close, has raised the stakes for us. Gary, Kim, Sherry, raise the stakes. Every time I hold that little fella, I wonder what he'll be. I wonder what he'll do. I wonder what kind of world we're going to leave for him. And I'm concerned. I pray about it. But I've decided because of May 24th, 2022, that I'm not content with the status quo. I want that prayer that you sang to take its root in me. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done right here on earth as it is. Jesus would have never taught us to pray that way if it wasn't possible. And I wanted to start with me and with you and with us. Because the way that we think, when we can think like Jesus, we can live like Christ. We need some light. And Christ in you is the light. May it be so. In Jesus' name.